0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, Esther, chapter one. Chapter one of Esther is really not part of the main plot of the story. Rather, some of the primary players are going to be introduced and the scene will be set. After all, this is a story. It's told by an expert storyteller. So it's structured that way. Here, the royal life of Persian monarchs is portrayed in all of its decadent extravagancies. We see how focused the royal court is upon the trappings of government. How those in power can devolve into spending their time on the most ridiculous matters that are so trivial, but they think it's a priority. Naturally, these matters are what affects them the most on a personal level, matters that in their minds might affect their wealth, their status, their image, or their egos. And when we open our story of Esther, the new Persian empire is a relatively young empire. This second of the four Gentile world empires predicted by Daniel's prophecies is only about 50 years old. And what we must always keep in mind is that in the main, each of these empires that arise merely takes an empire that was already in existence and it converts it to a new ethnic government. That is, the Babylonians took an empire that was already established by the Assyrians and made it their own. The Babylonians certainly added territory wherever possible. They modified the laws and the tax systems to suit them. But what it really mostly amounted to was a change of government administration by force. A coalition of the Medes and Persians had recently conquered the Babylonian Empire and now made it their own. The ethnic Chaldean ruling dynasty that had governed the Babylonian Empire was replaced now by the ethnic ruling dynasty of the Medes and the Persians and so now it was the Persian Empire. And of course all kings of empires well they want their empire to be greater still. Now some do it by trying to improve and refine the territory they already have to make it richer. Others have the conquest of other kingdoms and lands in mind to make their holdings even larger. Most kings of empires do both to some degree. Now King Cyrus, who was the first king of the new Persian Empire, had his hands full simply consolidating his power and governing this empire as it was when he took it from the Babylonians. He was also somewhat idealistic. So he sought to right the many wrongs that he felt the Babylonian government had perpetrated upon its people. And thus one of the first acts was to free the Jewish people to go back home to Judah. Now the king in our story of Esther, however, well, he had different motivations and goals. As the fourth king of the media Persian empire, he was the benefactor of what his predecessors had accomplished. Not unlike King Solomon, he inherited a stable empire, huge tax revenues, a gigantic amount of wealth was in the state treasury. So this king lived in the lap of luxury and he sat around his palace all day consulting with his lap dogs who were masquerading as advisors and thinking of ways to spend his bottomless fortune. His ego and his legacy were his main concerns. So, he had Macedonia and the surrounding areas, typically in our Bibles called Greece. He had them in his sights as a means to expand his empire for the sake of his reputation. Let's read Esther chapter 1. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1089. Esther chapter 1. These events took place in the time of Ahasuerus, the, the Ahasuerus who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. It was in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Shushan, the capital, in the third year of his reign, that he gave a banquet for all of his officials and courtiers. The army of Persia and Media... The nobles and the provincial officials were in attendance. He displayed the dazzling wealth of his kingdom and his great splendor for a long time, for 180 days. And at the end of that time, the king gave a seven-day banquet in the courtyard of the royal palace garden for all the people, both great and small, there in Shushan, the capital. There were white cotton curtains and blue hangings fastened to silver rods with cords of fine linen and purple. The columns were marble. The couches for reclining at table were of gold and silver on, mo- on a mosaic flooring of malachite and marble, mother of pearl and onyx. Drinks were served in gold goblets, with each goblet different from the others. There was royal wine in abundance as benefits royal bounty. The drinking was Not according to any fixed rule, for the king had ordered the stewards to serve each man what he wanted. Also Vashti, the queen, gave a banquet for the women in the royal house belonging to king Hashfrosh. On the seventh day... When the king was in high spirits from the wine, he ordered Meoman, Bista, Harvona, Biktah, av, uh, Avagta, Zetar, and Karkas, the seven officers who attended him, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with the royal crown in order to show the people and the officials her beauty, for she was indeed a good-looking woman. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the order of the king, which he had sent through his officers. This enraged the king, his anger blazed inside him. As was the king's custom, he consulted sages well versed in matters of law and justice. With him were Karshna, Shatar, Admata, Tarshish, Mares, Marsna, and Memokan the seven vice-regents of Persian media, who were part of the king's inner circle and were the most important officials in the kingdom. The king asked the sages, According to the law, what should we do to Queen Vasti Vashti, since she didn't obey the order of King Ahasuerus conveyed by his officers? Memakan Khan presented the king and vice-regents this answer. Vashti the queen has not has wronged not only the king but also all the officials all the peoples and all the known provinces of king Achashverosh because of this act of the queen's will be, uh, because of this act of the queen's uh, will become known to all women who will then start showing disrespect towards their own husbands and they will say king Achashverosh ordered Vashti the queen to be brought before him but she wouldn't come Moreover, the noble ladies of Persian media who hear of the queen's conduct will mention it to all the king's officials, which will bring about no end of disrespect and discord. If it pleases his majesty, let him issue a royal decree. Let it be written as one of the laws of the Persians and the Medes, which are irrevocable that Vashti is never again to be admitted into the presence of King Achashverosh, and that the king give her royal position to someone better than she. And when the edict made by the king is proclaimed throughout the length and the breadth of the kingdom, then all wives will honor their husbands, whether great or small. This advice pleased the king and the officials. So the king did what Memachan had suggested. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, that every man should be master in his own house and speak the language of his own people. Depending on which Bible version you are using you might be saying, "Mm, wait a minute, what happened to the rest of these verses? You seem to have skipped some. If your Bible is taken from the Greek Septuagint, then chapter 1 is about 50% longer than if your Bible is taken from the Hebrew. If you're reading from the complete Jewish Bible, as I just did, then it's taken from the Hebrew Masoretic text of about 1000 AD. Now we discussed last week the reason for the differences between the two versions. And while we can only speculate, it's a pretty reasonable speculation that it is because without the additions it was felt there was nothing religious about the story of Esther at all. In fact, the mention of God is entirely missing. The result of this startling fact is that early rabbis debated over whether the book of Esther even belonged as part of the Holy Scriptures. It seems that the additions to the Greek versions of Esther satisfied most of them sufficiently enough to accept the book as worthy of being part of the Hebrew Bible. So let's stop right here and I'm going to read to you the additions made to chapter 1. Essentially, these Greek additions I'll read to you replace verse 1 of the Hebrew version. In other words, this entire addition belongs at the beginning of the chapter. From verse 2 forward, the Greek versions and the Hebrew versions are nearly identical. So, here is the addition in the Greek to chapter 1. I want to read this from the New Jerusalem Bible. In the second year of the reign of the great king Ahasuerus, On the first day of Nisan, a dream came to Mordecai son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew living at Susa and holding high office at the royal court. He was one of the captives whom Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had deported from Jerusalem with Jokniah king of Judah. This was his dream. There were cries and noise, thunder and earthquakes and disorder over the whole earth. Then two great dragons came forward, each ready for the fray, and set up a great roar. At the sound of them, every nation made ready to wage war against the nation of the just. A day of darkness and gloom, of affliction and distress, oppression, great disturbance on earth. The righteous nation was thrown into consternation at the fear of the evils that were awaiting them, and they prepared for death, crying out to God. Then from their cry is from a little spring there grew a great river, a flood of water. Light came as the sun arose, and the humble were raised up, and they devoured the mighty. On awakening from this dream and vision of God's designs, Mordecai thought deeply on the matter, trying his best all day to discover what its meaning might be. Lodging at court, With Bigton and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the palace, Mordecai got wind of their intentions and uncovered their plot. And learning that they were preparing to assassinate king Asuerus, he warned the king against them, and the king gave orders for the two eunuchs to be tortured. They confessed and they were executed. The king then had these events recorded in his chronicles, while Mordecai himself also wrote an account of them. The king then appointed Mordecai to an office at court and Rewarded him with high with presents. But Haman, son of Hamadata, the Agagite, who enjoyed high favour with the king, determined to injure Mordecai in revenge for the king's two eunuchs. Whoops. So there's the addition. <clears throat> now the early church treated these additions differently depending on the decision of the bishops that were in charge, the various regional groups of congregations. Some of them accepted the additions in their entirety, and so they included them in the Bible. Others discarded them entirely and accepted them only as part of the several books of the Apocrypha. St. Jerome made them like an appendix at the end of the book of Esther and here in the Jerusalem Bible the editions are placed like they are in the Greek Septuagint but they're written in italics so that the reader knows that these verses are disputed and can make a personal decision about how we ought to handle them my approach to this issue is this I shall read from the Hebrew first next I'll alert you and then read the Greek additions as they were placed in the Septuagint we might talk about these additions briefly it depends on the situation personally I find no good reason to accept them as authentic but rather have every reason to see them as as a misguided attempt to add to the scriptures even if the motive might have been a good one Well, the opening of this chapter um, gives us a time, a place, and it gives us the name of the king at the center of the Esther story. The time, we're told, is the third year of the king's reign. And even though the Greek edition pinpoints a date to the first day of Nisan, the first month of the... Hebrew religious calendar, I don't think we can rely on it although it's not impossible. Thus since this king was known to reign from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. this story would necessarily then have to be placed about 484 B.C. However it must be stated that it is very difficult and tricky to align the reigns of these various kings according to our modern calendar systems. No Bible-era culture right on through the New Testament would have spoken in terms of A.D. or B.C. There was no universal calendar in those days. Rather, it's as though... the calendar was reset upon each new king seceding to the throne literally in the year a Middle Eastern king was coronated it became year one in his kingdom other kingdoms did the same thing so each independent kingdom had its own reckoning of what year it was So when we're told it's in the third year of so-and-so's reign, if the people of that king's kingdom had a calendar hanging up on their walls, of course there was no such thing, that make-believe calendar would have said the year was three. But when a new king was crowned, the calendar would revert to one. Now the place of our story of Esther is in Susa. In Hebrew, it's called Shushan. Now this was originally the capital of the kingdom of Elam, but it had long since been destroyed. The new Susa was a magnificent city. Actually, history records that there were four capital cities of the new Persian Empire operating all at the same time. Susa, Ecbatana, Babylon, and Persepolis. But calling them all capitals is misleading. Susa was the administrative center of the empire. It's the equivalent of, of London or Moscow or Washington, D.C. The other three cities mentioned are where there were royal palaces that the king would have used for various reasons, sometimes moving just to enjoy the seasons. Having four palaces was appropriate for a king of an empire of such an enormous size as Persia as it demonstrated his wide-ranging authority and his wealth. But Susa, was his primary residence and it was the official capital of the media Persian empire now our king is called Asuerus in Persian Xerxes in Greek Achashverosh in Hebrew these are all vocalizations in three different languages of the same name and depending on your Bible version, one of these three will be what you read. Yet some versions might say that this king is not Xerxes, it's Artaxerxes. These indeed are two different people. Artaxerxes is Xerxes' son. And by saying Esther's king is Artaxerxes, it is that Bible editor's attempt place the time of our story about 40 years later and this has been mostly discredited. So Esther takes place entirely within the confines of the capital city of Persia which is Susa. The king of our story is Xerxes and for the sake of simplicity we'll say that the time is around 480 B.C. Xerxes was the son of Darius I. This is not the same Darius, Daryavesh, of the book of Daniel who was a Mede. Now while archaeology has not proved it, it seems that the Darius of Daniel, who was a Mede, essentially was a lesser king who ruled under the higher authority of Cyrus, who was a Persian. In time, Darius lost his position, Cyrus became the sole king of the Persian Empire. Now as the symbolism of one um, of Daniel's visions accurately portrayed by the portrays rather the Median uh, Persian Empire as a ram with two horns, if you'll recall, the horns were of two different sizes. One noticeably larger than the other, which indicates one is more powerful than the other. And indeed that was the case. The kingdom of Persia was more powerful than the kingdom of Media. And although these two kingdoms were strong allies due to long-standing royal family ties nonetheless it was only a matter of time before the bigger horn flexed its muscles. So it seems as though Darius the Mede was given the position as the king of the former Babylonian empire, so he operated out of Babylon, as a happy political accommodation that was instituted immediately following the fall of Babylon but in a few years this arrangement had served its purpose to recognize the honor and the friendship and the achievements of the Medes and now Cyrus, the Persian, simply abolished this intermediate office and he became the sole king over a united Persian empire. So, again, for the sake of simplicity... Cyrus was the first Persian king, Cambyses followed him, then Darius I, then Xerxes, the king of our story. It was Darius I who built the fabulous palace of Susa that his son Xerxes now occupied. Now, since it's going to be important to our story, I'll tell you now, That Darius I had built an amazingly modern postal system. The Persian government administration relied on rapid communications as the Persian Empire was so vast, it was so culturally diverse. He thought, and wisely so, that accurate and efficient communication between the central government and its many provinces and districts, that was the key to successful governing and to defense of his empire. This was accomplished by a network of roads that all eventually led to Susa. Ancient records show, for example, that there were 111 relay posts on the road between Susa and Sardis. So one can only imagine there had to be a few thousand postal relay stations in all in this vast communication networks of the Persian Empire. How large was this, this rather young empire? Verse, set, verse 1 says it consisted of 127 provinces that ranged from India in the east to Ethiopia in the west and south. But let's be clear, this is not referring to the India that we know today. The reference is really in the scriptures to the Indus, meaning the Indus River. And it's actually speaking of what we today call Pakistan. Pakistan. As for Ethiopia, the modern Ethiopia is not exactly the same as the ancient one. The ancient one is today what we would call the northern Sudan. Further, using the term provinces gives us kind of a false picture. The Hebrew word is made In modern terms, probably the word district is a better choice. Think in terms of counties or parishes. So the 127 Medina were smallish districts that at one time had been independent kingdoms or, or small city states. So they each had somewhat identifiably different languages or, or variant dialects. And of course, different customs and traditions. Verse 3 says that King Xerxes threw a banquet all of his government's officials and that he showed off his amazing wealth for 180 days. Now as I mentioned in last week's introduction, this is often discounted as untrue because it's unthinkable that anyone could hold a 180 day long banquet, but that's not what it says and that's not what it implies. Rather, there was a banquet, and the text seems to imply two banquets, one at the start of the festival, one that brings it to a close, that was associated with this 180-day festival, and it was done for the purpose of Xerxes letting his subjects view view the wealth and power that he held. Now, what might have precipitated the decision to do this? Well, while again it's speculative we can pretty firmly connect the time period of this banquet to Persia's attack of the Greeks. That is, it seems that it was probably about two years from the date of this 180 day festival that Persia sent a large expeditionary force to conquer Macedonia and the surrounding territories. Persia was repelled by the Greeks, by the way, and then a second attempt, perhaps 18 months later, wound up in a terrible loss for Xerxes. So a number of astute scholars point out that this feast was no doubt a way for Xerxes to muster support of all of his government officials, of his far-flung empire, for a war of conquest that was mostly just the dream of this pampered and bored king after all in Persia life was good things were generally peaceful there was widespread prosperity in the kingdom why would anybody want to go to war for more land thus the king hoped that by showing off his wealth and his awesome resources These government officials would lose their reluctance and back his plan and see this proposed war with Greece as an assured victory that would only add to the wealth and prosperity of his empire. Well, the next several verses elaborate on these festivities and it speaks of marble columns and mosaic flooring and couches to recline while eating. There were curtains... Made of the finest linen, much use of the most expensive colors there were to manufacture blue and purple. Goblets made of gold were used, and they were all different. The royal wine, meaning the finest wine, was used to ply the guests. Verse 8 explains that the guests didn't have to follow the usual Persian protocol of drinking proportionally to the king. That is, there was a rule in Persian, a dot, a dot, that the king determined how much people were to drink. And however much he drank, they were to follow his lead. And as the story unfolds, we find that Xerxes was a lush. And he seemed to be intoxicated as much and as often as possible. This passage has caused Bible scholars some interpretation problems because on the one hand, we hear that the Persian law, a dot, is irrevocable. And on the other hand, the king revoked the law about how much wine these festival guests were obligated to drink but common sense and some reading of other Persian documents makes it self-evident that the Persian term dat can indicate a law a regulation a tradition even just a custom so apparently it was a Persian custom for everyone to follow the king's lead in drinking as opposed to a, a firm law that might actually get one arrested and prosecuted if he wasn't drunk enough and so Since many ethnic groups were represented at this this festival, and since the purpose was for PR and for schmoozing the guests, the king relaxed the custom, and he made it clear that there would be no breach of protocol or offense taken if a person chose to drink more or less than the king. Well, verse 9 explains... That the, queen, the king's wife, Queen Vashti, held a banquet for the women. Now these women would have been the wives perhaps the escorts of the various government officials <clears throat> Now would be a good time to explain something that will very shortly have some significant bearing on this story The Middle East, of course, has always been a highly male-dominated society. But it is manifested in varying degrees from society to society and age to age. The Persian society in this era was among the more extreme. Men partied and drank by themselves away from the women. Women lived very separate lives from their husbands depending on one's level in society. At the highest levels, the royal and the aristocrat level, it seems that the separation was the greatest. Some of it was male chauvinism and domination, but some of it also concerned the great degree of modesty that was required of females. So, it was considered terribly inappropriate, immodest, for the women to be around the men who were drinking. In fact, this was actually cemented in Persian law. Now since essentially this 180-day festival had as its highlight an unlimited supply of the king's own wine stores, drunkenness was the daily mode of most of these officials. Thus Vashti had to entertain the wives and girlfriends of these officials from the 127 provinces. But verse 10 explains that on the final day, the seventh day of the uh, banquet, the seven day banquet spoken of in verse 5, after months of being drunk and disorderly, the inebriated king decided he wanted his most honored male guests to view his beautiful wife. So he ordered that she come to him immediately. He had seven royal courtiers, close advisors, to go and fetch his wife. She was to wear her royal crown, but she refused And in the text, we're not given the reason for her refusal. So as we can imagine, all sorts of opinions have arisen as to why this was. One tradition is that she was being required to appear naked before the king and his male guests. And it's the rabbis who came up with this one. (laughs) They said... That because it says she's to wear the royal crowns, what we're to take that to mean is a royal crown. What we're to take that to mean is that's all she was to wear. However, because the rabbis have always painted the government officials of the four Gentile world empires as louts and barbarians, this is the reason for their assumption of nakedness that is in no reasonable way applied in these passages. Some scholars paint her as just an arrogant arrogant queen who thought she could use her own power as royalty and that she mistakenly also thought she had the right of her own prerogative to go or not go. However, I think this had much more to do with the issue we just discussed. It was Persian law that a woman could not be in the presence of men who were drunk or drinking. To do so offended a woman's modesty, thus bringing shame upon her, and it violated exclusive male territory, thus infuriating the male ego. So, she was caught in a catch-22. No matter her decision, she was in a no-win situation. All because her drunken husband and his associates were behaving irrationally like you do when you're drunk. No matter, her firm stance on this situation left this king in a bad spot. He had made his boast in front of his whole royal court. He couldn't have his wife humiliate him in such a way. So he calls upon his seven other men, called wise men, to help him decide what Persian law dictated that he should do in response. Verse 13, and our complete Jewish Bible says that these men were well versed in law and justice. That's not a correct translation. Rather, the passage says that he consulted with wise men who knew the times. And it was these who were the experts in Persian law. The Hebrew word used for the times is et, And et means time. Just as we think of time today. The Hebrew word pakam means wise or wise men. In those days, the intellectuals of the Babylonian and then the Persian empires were well-versed in astrology and in divination. Time was a mysterious thing to them. And that's one reason that calendars were devised and kept by these same wise men, these same Chakam. When Yeshua was born, we hear in Matthew 2 of the wise men, coming from the east following a star. Matthew two one. After Yeshua was born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah during the time when Herod was king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. These men were very similar in profession to the ones we see attending to the king in our Esther story. But I'd like you to take note of the series of sevens that we've just encountered. The seven-day banquet, the issue of the king calling for Queen Vashti on the seventh day of the seven-day banquet, and this giant fury it all erupted into, The king ordering seven of his advisors to go and tell the queen to appear before the king and now a different group of seven wise men are consulted when Queen Vashti refuses to comply. Point being that as we've learned in our past studies, when we start seeing the number seven appear in the Bible, This helps us to know that God is directly involved in this situation. And that His sovereign will is being brought about even though it may be happening undetected by humans. Some scholars say that this isn't the case because it's it's a, it's a secular setting in a foreign country and that it's a Persian problem of a Persian king that's being dealt with. I say that this is really the story of Hebrews being rescued by a Hebrew man, Mordecai, and his Hebrew female relative, Esther. And no doubt the story is being told by a Hebrew storyteller in the Hebrew language, a story meant for the Hebrews to enjoy. Thus the series of sevens would be a signal to the Jews. And it gives Esther A Jewish religious context that it it, that is perhaps not so missing after all, and we don't need all those dubious Greek additions to discover it. Now, there's an important context for us to grasp in order to understand the king's self-made dilemma and his wise men's challenge in trying to deal with it. The king was in a pickle. he was drunk, not thinking straight, he issued an unbelievably disrespectful and inappropriate order to his beautiful queen, who was just over there minding her own business to come and display herself to his guests as though she was his prized heifer and while modern western women reading and listening will probably automatic see, automatically see this through a somewhat feminist lens. That's not my intent, and that's not the intent of the story. This disrespect on display was a Middle Eastern type of disrespect, and it involved immodesty and dishonor. This is not about a woman standing up to a man. A woman in that setting would rather literally die than live in such a state of shame that would result from this for the rest of her life. And the king had painted himself in a corner. Because he can't just say, Oh, I was drunk, I didn't mean it. Kings never make mistakes. Besides, the king was always drunk. Kings were considered godlike in their wisdom. And so a decision was made in an alcoholic stupor, and it was considered every bit as thought out and valid as one made stone sober. Further, he would be seen as weak and foolish, humbled by a mere woman, if he didn't do something drastic to deal with his wife's disobedience, because he had made this decree publicly so the king did what kings do he delegated the problem he laid it before his wise men to find a solution and Mimucon quickly proved his worth and demonstrated why he deserved to be in the king's inner circle Mimucon cleverly changed the context of the issue to take the heat off the king. He quickly broadened the issue of one from a single queen being disobedient to her all-powerful husband to one that affected not only the members of the royal court but virtually every husband and wife in the entire empire. After all, everyone present who heard the king's demands for his wife to come to him were males. But if we kind of back away and we look at this from a 30,000 foot viewpoint, what was really happening is that a mountain has been made from a molehill. Is there really grave danger to the marriages of every family in the empire because Queen Vashti refused to appear in front of a room full of drunken men? His modesty and protocol would have her do, regardless of the consequences. Honestly, the notion is absurd all the wives in the kingdom are now going to hear this and begin to rebel and show disrespect to their husbands too because of this? This is really a bit of comedy that's intended. Yet it also shows just how self-absorbed these royals are, so detached from reality, so ready to dispose of even the queen if it keeps them from admitting the king's error or exposing their own vanity? Well, the law-crazy Persian government decided that the only solution to the law that theoretically was at the bottom of this dilemma was enact another law. Sounds familiar? (laughs) And this new law was that Vashti could never again be in the presence of her husband. What it really is, is a writ of divorce. In fact, to make the point, up to now, every mention of Vashti included the word queen. From here forward, the title queen is no more spoken as a prefix to her name. She's just Vashti. Some rabbis said she was executed. There's no evidence of that. But she was kicked out of the harem. We really don't know what became of her. Verse 19 brings up the issue that any law approved by the king is irrevocable. And as we encounter later, we find that this means that the king can't even overturn his own law. Now some scholars say they find this to be nonsense, that a kingdom, let alone an empire, couldn't possibly be ruled in such a manner. But that's only another example of nothing but an opinion that's being held up as fact. The only evidence we have in documents is that indeed that's exactly how it was. Might a king have found a way to essentially annul one law with inventing a new one? Certainly. Just watch the operation of the parliaments in our Congress. It's done every day. Verse 21 says, the king was most pleased with this brilliant solution. He was off the hook. And it made him look like he was mainly concerned with the social fabric of Persia that it not be sullied or torn in case women might actually think they could brazenly disobey their husbands what a guy the wise men especially Mimikhan appeared to validate their title and so in verse 22 the decree to banish Vashti was piggybacked upon a law that said that wives should honor their husbands no matter their social status. Letters were sent to each Medina, each of the 127 districts, and they were sent, we're told, in their own alphabet and in their own ethnic language. This brings us back to that amazing postal system that must have included scribes that represented every known language of the empire because this won't be the final time that we hear of its use to send decrees of the king throughout the Persian empire in all the languages present in his empire. And at the end of this verse, we get this interesting comment that every man should be the master of his own house and speak the language of his own people. There's been a lot of academic discussion about what's intended by this statement, but I agree with the majority of scholars. To use modern terms, Persia was culturally diverse and multi-ethnic, which meant they were multilingual. Intermarriage among ethnic groups was usual, it was customary. The diversity was quite welcome in the Persian Empire and we have found an inscription on a tablet written by Xerxes that says this, I am Xerxes the great king, the king of kings, the king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages. The more usual practice for an expanding kingdom or empire, especially for an empire, was to demand that all conquered people learn to speak the language of the king. And then the royal documents and decrees, oral and written, were distributed in that language, and it was the duty of the empire's multi-ethnic citizens to understand it. Until very modern times, this was the custom in the USA. This tolerance for various languages and Persian culture stands in sharp contrast to the attitude of Greek culture. Greek writings show that one of the several things that they held against the Persians was the stupidity, in their estimation, of allowing scores of languages to exist in their empire, even writing the king's decrees in many languages for the sake of its diverse citizenry. So the idea of this statement that ends chapter 1 is that it combines the issues of language with a man being the master in his own home. And naturally the context is that this goes hand in hand with the new law about females showing proper respect to their husbands. Thus the law's intended effect was... That if a wife came from a different ethnic culture and language than her husband, there was only to be one language spoken, one culture practiced in every household. Guess which one? The native language and culture of the husband. Now if we can put ourselves in the position of a Jewish person, 2,000 years ago, reading this story, we would probably be rolling on the floor in laughter right about now. I mean, look at this silly set of circumstances that have evolved from these pagan Gentiles who are supposedly the superior masters of the domain. Silly rulings which now affects every household in the Persian Empire, all stemming from nothing more than a single instance of a queen refusing her inebriated husband's demand to come and show herself to his drinking buddies. We'll begin Esther chapter 2 next week.